everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey, the disappointed gamer knockgrinder. You promised me serious Sam, Mark. Well, you're unfortunately not going to get that serious Sam. Um, on today's episode, as you might have guessed, we'll be talking about the latest privilege elevation vulnerability in Microsoft Windows. We'll give an update on the Kaseya ransomware incident and then chat a bit about a very high-profile news story involving a spyware for hire maker. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and, I don't know, how do you stealth action on in? Whatever. Let's just hit the news. You cardboard box in like Metal Gear Solid? That's it. Hop in your cardboard box and start the news. So let's start this week with what's probably the biggest news story, even though in security or cybersecurity circles, it isn't exactly news to anyone that's been paying attention. Uh, so two weeks ago, Amnesty International and the French journalist nonprofit Forbidden Stories, in partnership with, I think, 17 different media organizations, including CNN and The Guardian and quite a few others, uh, began disclosing individuals that had been targeted by the NSO's Pegasus mobile device spying software campaign in recent years. And this was all courtesy of a big database leak of around 50,000 records or so that they got their hands on. Uh, so before we jump into NSO and Pegasus and all them, uh, that database contained the phone numbers of individuals that had been targeted uh, by this spying software, which included journalists and politicians, all despite NSO claiming that Pegasus is only for catching terrorists and criminals, and that they strongly vet all organizations that they sell access to this tool to. Now, the security community has known about this, like I said, for quite some time. Like, Corey, you did a, a daily security bite episode back in August of 2016 around one of the vulnerabilities that uh, NSO Group was basically selling access to. Uh, but it seems like this database is really what finally spurned the whole all the big media publications to finally catch on to exactly what's going on with this company based out of Israel now. Um, so I guess let's start. Who is NSO Group? So they're a Israeli surveillance company that develops and licenses software for government agencies to, as they say, fight crime and terrorism. Uh, but if you've been following them at all for the last few years, you'll notice they're, the definitions that some of their customers have for terrorists and criminals are pretty dang loose. Or, or we can put it a different way. They're an Israeli company that sells malware, stuff that does the exact same thing malware does to snoop on phones. They, they claim it's for intelligence and government use, but does that make it not malware? software designed to be hidden on your phone and do everything, including turning the mic on and becoming a listening device. So yeah, everyone has different opinions on uh, how far intelligence agencies should be allowed to go. Uh, maybe sometimes that's proper if, if you know, there's a subpoena, evidence, blah, blah, blah. But, but they make malware. They, they sell it as good guy malware, but it's malware in my opinion. Even spyware, by the way, even spyware is a little light. I mean, it's uh, remote monitoring of everything on your phone. <laughs> yeah. And so what is Pegasus? It's their flagship product, basically. 
And it is like it's spyware, but like, as you said, basically everything you can do on your phone is monitored through this. So it's when it gets installed on a device, it's able to track everything and view everything from text messages to photos, emails, videos, your contacts lists, your GPS location, can even record phone calls, uh, remotely turn on your microphone and cameras and take pictures on its own. Basically anything that your phone can do, this enables it for the the people that bought this software. Um, it even gets around a lot of encryption, like end-to-end -end encryption you th see in things like WhatsApp and Signal and Telegram by instead of having to crack the messages or hack the company where you know the company can't actually view your messages either, it just waits until the application decrypts the message and it steals it right out of there. Or it can steal the encryption keys off of your phone for these messaging apps and then allow them to decrypt them. Um, they've often targeted vulnerabilities in messaging apps and web browsers to execute what's called zero-click installs. Basically, uh, if you remember, the, what was it called? Stage Fright in Android quite a few years ago where your, your phone, when it receives a, a video message, so an MMS message instead of SMS, it'll do some pre-processing before it even displays it to you. And Stage Fright exploit, exploited a vulnerability in that pre-process where you didn't have to click anything. As long as your phone received the message, it could get hacked through this. And it goes after those styles of vulnerabilities. And then also drive-by downloads hosted on websites that you they use phishing to trick you into clicking on. Um, it'll try and root the device or jailbreak it uh, to gain additional access and evade detection because, like, I mean, let's give Apple and Google some credit. They've done a lot in recent years to harden their uh their devices and their operating systems, Apple especially. Um, and in, in a lot of cases, in order to really evade detection for a long period of time, you do have to jailbreak and root the device to get past some of those protections. But so they market this as a tool for intelligence agencies and government agencies and the military to track terrorists and other criminals. But we've seen uh, reports of it targeting well, I mean, people that I would not consider a criminal, but I guess in the countries that they reside in, they are treated as criminals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what's a criminal, right? I mean, here a journalist has freedom of press, but I don't know if you're, this isn't one of those countries, but if you're in China, <laughs> you know, and you're speaking against the government, those journalists could become criminals. I hear in Hong Kong, if you speak against the government, it's now a crime. So, uh yeah, what's criminal in one country is apparently different in others. I mean, I'd like to say, I, I honestly, I'm not overly fluent in Mexico's constitution, but I'd, I'd like to think that they're a bit more of a developed country that does have some protections. But even the Mexican government is a customer of NSO. And The Guardian noted that one of their journalists, uh, Carmen Aristegui, uh, who wrote an expose on some corruption from uh, into former Mexican president Enrique Nieto, uh, they were targeted and actually had... Uh, artifacts that they found through forensic analysis that they succeeded in hacking their phone with this software, basically. Um, several people closely related to Jamal Khashoggi, who you probably know as the Washington Post journalist who was gruesomely slain uh, a couple years ago. People, uh, a few people close to him, like his wife was targeted and uh, his fiance, which actually I don't understand the full details about the wife and fiance bit, but I think that's another cultural <laughs> thing. Uh, both of them were targeted by this as well by the Saudi Arabian government. So it is like NSO claims that they vet the people they sell this to. They're not just selling it to like some random bozo on the internet. They're government organizations. But then 
Like those government organizations basically have free reign to do whatever they want with it. And we know about that because of previous instances where people have found this spyware on their phones and now this database of basically 50,000 phone numbers that they had targeted that are belonging to people from politicians to journalists to, I mean, people that you, I don't Emmanuel Macron. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of French people that consider Emmanuel Macron a criminal, but, it, it, you know, he is a prime minister or I guess yeah. president. I, I don't South know. African president too. No, he's the French president, yes. I think. But yeah, it's one question that I haven't been able to find out. And the only reason I ask is, by the way, I, I obviously am kind of against this type of thing if these allegations are true. Uh, but everything is based on some sort of 50,000 mobile phone related leaked data. I can't tell if it's more than just numbers or something else. But I haven't heard much detail about the leak itself or what it comes from. And the only reason I bring it up is because uh, it's an easy out without us having that data. But but the, the NSO group basically says that data has nothing to do with them and that the, the mobile phones on that list don't represent mobile phones with Pegasus software. So I'm curious, has anyone shared more detail uh, where the leak comes from, what's in it? I have not seen anything yet from the, I think, five of the journalist organizations that have published it. But basically, they've said yeah, they've the verified it through their own like independent channels. They've verified several of the targets on there actually had Pegasus installed on the devices, ultimately. Uh, a lot of them seem to be targets that they didn't necessarily mean they were like uh, successfully hit with it. Yeah, installed just, by the... Yeah, potential targets for it. But yeah, it basically boils down to do you trust the 17 large news organizations that say they verified it through whatever their channels are or not? So, yeah, you're right. It is a bit of an out. NSO group has been very publicly saying that it's unrelated to us and this is all bogus kind of thing. But I mean, if you've been following NSO group for the last five years, you've know exactly this is what's going on basically they're definitely sketchy or have done some things that i think are sketchy to be private business <laughs> yeah exactly rather than government red teams but yeah no I, as i said i don't believe it but the unfortunateness of i mean you may not have to share the source of it but if you're not sharing the details of the leak it makes it easy for someone to deny and do he said he said she said and in this kind of polarized environment where I'm like you, by the way, I tend to trust major news publications and journalistic values. Personally, I believe journalism is one of the strongest parts of a democracy, keeping a democracy free. But uh, it, it just makes it easier to to not know for sure if we can't have a little more details about what this leak is. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, there's been some like flack on the mobile phone operating system developers like apple's recently gotten flack for restrictions on allowing third-party endpoint protection tools that might be able to catch some of this um, both of them both apple and google have been criticized for lack of logging to help aid in forensic analysis uh, their responses are basically yeah you know we could enable some of this logging to help you catch these threats but that same logging could be used by the actual criminals to potentially gain more information about the system and attack it and it seems a bit of like a you know we could help you out, but that also opens up a whole nother attack avenue for actual cyber criminals to kind of go through. So I kind of get where they're coming from. But at the same time, you feel like there's got to be something that Apple and Google can do to help 
clamp down on some of these styles of attacks or at least help out. Yeah, and security software has existed for other devices too. Apple and Google are both smart companies that could probably find neat ways to detect this, but they don't have the corner on the market of ways to inspect and log things without making those also avenues of an attack. You know what I mean? I, I, I'm sure there's some middle ground where they can allow security companies a little more insight uh, as long as you know they vet the security companies and the security companies are used to having to do their job properly not to expose more vulnerabilities or more data leaks yeah um so there has been some fallout from this news in just the past few weeks like israel themselves say that they're now investigating potential changes to their export laws on this basically spyware um, and when it comes to uh, how they license uh, NSO Group to be able to export this to third-party countries, um, Amazon shut down all of their cloud infrastructure related to NSO Group recently, which I thought was interesting because I think it was last year or two years ago, the last time some of this NSO Group stuff came up, Amazon just decided not to comment on the fact that they were hosting a lot of it. And now suddenly it's a big deal for them to shut it down. But I mean, I guess better late than never in that case. Um, but it's basically like, I mean, it feels weird having a private, I, I get, I get it. We're like in a capitalist society for the most part for a lot of countries and the private organizations are the one that drive a lot of this, but it feels gross having a private company basically sell spyware to countries that yeah. are using it. It does to me too, but in hindsight, it probably happens all, all the time, even here in the U S uh, first of all, we should point out, I, we always start with whether you believe he's a traitor or a hero. Edward Snowden pointed out this sort of capability a long time ago <laughs> when he first kind of did his leaks. Uh, our government has participated in these types of things. He's warned about phone spyware as an avenue. And by the way, when he had all this information and was working with the NSA, he is actually a contractor. I, I believe he worked directly for them for a while, but he is a, a contractor for a private company here in the U.S. that contracts often with the government. So I guess we have to real. It, it's weird. I, I think NSO is weird because you can kind of see them selling on the open market. A lot of these private companies, but government contractors tend to only work with the government and you may not see them as much. But I, I agree with you. It, it just seems gross and sketchy. And yet, we should know this by now, you know, I, a lot of the stuff, even if you think he's a traitor, a lot of the crap in the documents Edward Snowden shared so long ago are still proving to be true, truer and truer as time and evidence starts to accumulate. So, I mean, the good news is like things tend to get fixed once they, well, maybe not always, but they are more likely to get fixed once the general public catches onto it and starts once getting it's exposed. Yeah. And my own grandma sent me an email two nights ago asking about this, <laughs> uh, this company that was selling spyware and spying on people. And the fact that she is now <laughs> caught onto it and sent me an email asking yeah. about it means that it's reached the mainstream and it might be enough finally to get something changed whether i mean there's no way in heck this is going away forever the style of company but maybe we can get some like international regulations or understandings on who the heck we sell it to and how we actually vet them so they're not just using it to spy on journalists can't be that shady and operate outside the shadows once the light's been shown but to your point i i, I hope that the regulation comes i i don't uh 
I don't go by the false expectation that this would go away forever and no one else would do something like this again or that even NSO group will go away. But uh, you're right. It's glad that this is out in the open because at least more people will think about it. And it sounds like this is basically just the start from Amnesty International and uh, Forbidden Stories. Like They've released a few of the names, but I'm willing to bet this is not the end. We'll hear from them on people that have been targeted by it. And as more of those names continue to come out over the next few weeks or months, It'll continue feeding into the public uh, sphere oh, for and sure. potentially get stuff changed. Especially when they're attacking journalists. I'm sure the journalists are, will even be more motivated to expose it. Exactly. Um, so moving on now to an update from uh, a, that recent Kaseya ransomware incident. Um, so Kaseya, who was involved in one of the largest ransomware attacks in history, announced this last week that they had obtained the our evil ransomware decryptor from a quote trusted third party and that after verifying the decryption tool worked properly they began shipping it out to their effective customers on this last thursday now as you're listening to this podcast now if you remember our evil demanded 70 million dollars for this um encrypt decryptor tool yeah, for, for the for the universal one like there's probably a lot of versions that have different unique let's call them keys for all the customers but they were offering up a universal one that would work for for all the victims of this particular msp targeted attack yep um so it sounds like that is the one they got uh we know that our evil has historically been willing to negotiate down prices so it's likely that they didn't pay the full 70 million but it does seem to look like they paid something and To, to to be clear they have not shared at all how they got this key. They are not admitting to pain, but uh, I, I speculate equally with Mark and suspect they did pay something to get this. Trusted so, third party sure sounds a lot like cyber insurance provider in this scenario. That, that, that or a ransomware negotiator, both of sometimes provided by cyber insurance providers, sometimes your own. So, yeah. But this does come after our evil took down all of their infrastructure about a week, week and a half ago or now. Like their blog, Happy Blog, is still offline to this date, and a lot of their distribution infrastructure is still down too. Yeah, I don't think they're gone. You don't think they're gone for good? Like no. this wasn't their final coup de gras, get 70 million and uh, leave? Remember JBS? Or remember the oil pipeline? Like, oh, we didn't mean to do that. We'll leave it alone for a while. No, they're they're just uh, this this as it should, since it's affected anywhere from fifteen hundred to two thousand people that the organizations, I should say, that these MSPs support. It's a big deal. So hopefully they have law enforcement all over their their behinds. Granted, they're in Russia where they don't really extradite. In fact, I I, I would suspect based on the the our evil Ukrainian arrests, we probably know who a lot of these actors are. We just can't get to them. But no, I don't think they're gone. I also one of my questions is it good or bad that Kaseya did this? And that's such a hard question. I think everyone that listens to us know that while we're not ivory tower, we know there's all kinds of unique situations that exist. And we, we can't tell you never to pay ransomware. We believe very strongly in not paying it because it just drives this market. I tell you what, if I made 70, I, I guess you could argue 70 million is a good payout to go disappear. On the flip side, if I made 70 million so easily, it just encourages me how great this market is and I would stay in business and make you know 500 million more. So I, I don't think they're gone. But the question is, is it good that Kaseya did this? And I am so mixed here in that one, 
I, I, I'm kind of impressed in one way because they weren't directly, their files weren't encrypted, right? Kaseya was not a victim of this attack. It was the customers of their products and more importantly, all the MSPs customers. So, you know, they are a company that serves MSPs, so they want to help out the MSP, but in doing so, they had to help out those 1,500 to 2,000 customers too. So I think it's a very noble and and accountable thing to say, you know, a zero day in our product or an unpatched vulnerability, if you think it's not zero day because they knew about it, uh, cause this whole thing. So we are going to take accountability and, and get it fixed for the people that suffered. I, you know, while that's not entirely, you know, just for, for charity, they're doing that also because it's a way of recovering reputation. It still is an accountable and, and noble thing to do. So I can't help think a little bit of kudos. On the flip side, they just supplied potentially up to 70 million of proof to the criminals that ransomware works. So they're going to keep pushing it. Yeah. And even if it wasn't like, even if our evil, whoever's responsible for this goes away, everyone else just saw, oh, I can make $70 million and now they're just going to jump in and fill the void now too. So I yeah. I still do not like funding cyber criminals. I get that in this case, it did result in them getting access to files back. But in general, that's not a guarantee. All it does is it just yeah. gives more incentive now. And if even though it's not, even if it wasn't like as much as we're acknowledging that other people can make the decision and there's gray area there, I still believe in not paying because I think while it is a lot of hurt that someone has to suffer, I think long term, the damage of pain is going to be worse and worse and worse. Humans are not good at making short term painful decisions to offset something that's coming down down the road a long time from now, climate change or whatever else you want to, you know, there's things we know that are bad decisions that could hurt of all of humanity for a very long time, uh, but it's centuries away. So we're, we're not good at making painful decisions to, to protect ourselves from that. I mean, we've already and seen I, I, this though, like ransomware used to be a couple hundred dollars to get your files back and now it's millions. Yes. And, and that's kind of the point. I mean, we know paying ransomware authors is just going to increase this business. And it's one comp it's usually one organization doing it to save themselves. And that's the argument, which I, I, I mean, I understand it's human nature to understand that. And yet you're just hurting yourself and everyone else in the long run. So it, it's, it's definitely a weird situation. At the very least, the reason I give a little respect, I, I, I don't necessarily think it's right, the decision. But again, in this case, Kaseya at least wasn't paying to recover their own stuff. They were doing it as a way to try to help out for a problem that they were taking a little bit of accountability for. And who knows? I mean, I'm maybe sure this, their uh, lawyers won't say they took accountability, but you know what I mean. <laughs> maybe this this trusted third party, the reason they're not naming him was because it was like a gray hat hacker that went hacked back and stole the yeah. encryption stuff. If they didn't pay and they they got the key some cool way like that, damn right, that's awesome. Uh, we fully support that. I really hope that that's the case. <laughs> the fact that they're not, not but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess you could argue that maybe if it was a less than, I mean, that kind of gray hat may not, you know, I would think the reason they're not sharing is because they probably paid, but you could argue that hacking back at least currently, apparently there's a new law being considered, bill being considered, but at least right now hacking back is illegal. 
Yep. Uh, either way, though, if you were affected by this, it sounds like a decryption key is coming your way, so that it is at least good news to the victims of the attack, even if it does potentially have the the net negative of fueling additional ransomware attacks going forward, unfortunately. Um, so, moving on to our last topic. Um, some recent... Hey, there was a recent vulnerability disclosed in Microsoft Windows. What are you talking about? You told me we were talking about Sirius Sam. I thought I was going to get my old Doom computer and do some really Twitch Twitch action play, Sirius Sam shooting of, of people with bombs on their hand. <laughs> exactly. It's been a pretty rough month for Microsoft when it comes to serious or at least high-priority vulnerabilities. Like, Print Nightmare has been a bit of a nightmare just in terms of getting the thing patched fully. And now they've got another nightmare on their hands with this Sirius Sam flaw that's affecting... What? It's a flaw? Yeah. I'm so disappointed now. I was expecting a game. So bit of background on this. Um, on Windows machines, your user password hashes are all stored in the Serial Account Manager, or SAM, database file, uh, which gets mounted to the registry hive at hklm slash SAM. Um, this file is physically stored in the system root, so C Windows uh, slash System32 slash config directory. And researchers found recently that the built-in users group, so basically all users on the system, have full read and execute permissions for the SAM and system hives that are stored in that directory because of some bungled um, permissions inheritance for that directory. Now, normally you can't read the database files themselves because they're locked when Windows is running, um, but researchers have found that you can bypass this lock by reading the volume shadow copies instead. So VSS, which is the volume shadow copy service, creates backups of files so that users can revert back to previous versions in the event of like a bad update or a bad patch. And VSS is actually enabled automatically on any Windows installation that has a system drive of over 128 gigabytes. And then shadow volume copies are created automatically. By the way, yeah. we, weird aside, back in the day, VSS could have saved you from ransomware, but now nowadays ransomware is smart enough to look for shadow copies and to delete them before installing. Which you know, Not related at all to this, but but just uh, their, their shadow copies could be a cool thing. How very kind of ransomware authors to save you from this vulnerability. Yeah, they, they just don't want you to suffer from serious Sam. That's, that's <laughs> the reasoning, right? Um, so not only is it enabled by default, on any Windows installation with a system drive of over 128 gigs, but shadow copies are also created automatically uh, with just a Windows update, which hopefully everyone is doing Windows updates at least once a month, and now, as of recently, potentially more than once a month. Uh, basically, using this access, any unprivileged user could gain access to password hashes for accounts on the system through that SAM file, um, the original Windows installation password, cryptographic keys, um, and even um, and uh, hashes that could be used for like a, a silver ticket attack uh, using tools like Mimikatz. In fact, uh, Gentle Kiwi, the author of the Mimikatz tool, actually updated it to now look for shadow volumes and grab hashes out of the SAM and system hives there if it uh, actually identifies them. Uh, so this was flagged as CVE 2021-36934. There currently is not a patch, but Microsoft has a KB article out with instructions for mitigating it. Uh, it's also called, what is it, Hive Nightmare or something like that. And uh, Sirius Sam, as you said. Um, there's a few things you can do. First off, 
You can just check if shadow copies are enabled by going to system properties, system protection, and then checking the drives that are listed under the protection settings. If you've got a large storage device, it's probably already enabled. Uh, you can disable the overly permissive ACLs by running the IC ACLs command listed in the KB that Microsoft has for CVE 2021-36934. But then you also have to delete any shadow copies that have been enabled, uh, which means deleting any system restore points and any shadow volumes that existed prior to you changing that access. Um, Microsoft also recommends creating a new system restore point. That way, if you do another update, it doesn't, and it has an issue, you have somewhere to go back to. And then the VSS admin list shadows command can help show any of those shadow copies that exist. So all in all, this is just quote unquote, just a privilege escalation flaw. It lets a unprivileged user potentially gain admin level access, but it's still pretty serious. That's it is a serious flaw, but it also feels like, man, I feel like every other episode we've talked about another privilege escalation flaw in Windows in the last couple months. Like Print Nightmare is technically one, although one of them is now a full-on remote code execution flaw too. Um, this really, it's, I remember that episode like two months ago or three months ago where we talked about that penetration testu, tester who basically said he has 100% success in elevating privileges if he gains access to a system. It's yep. because there's so many of these just small things that you might not think of that can enable that, basically. Yeah. As you said, Mimikatz is already adding this to its stuff, but Mimikatz could already grab the SAM database file without this new vulnerability. So, uh, it yeah. could. So, it, it's, it's, it did require elevated system, system, system privileges. Yeah. 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 Um, which Although I think there was one, ways. one method. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember. There used to be one method. It has so many methods to get it. So it used to be or at least period, two. No matter what, you cannot grab the file itself because it is locked. And so Mimikatz has a lot, a lot of ways of getting around that. Uh, things like you can just run it through CertUtil to base64 encode it and then grab that file. Um, you can use a few like PowerShell to go and grab it as well. So Mimikatz had a lot of that built in, but it still required elevated access Admin. or a an exploit of a vulnerability. This one, though, is now a new module in Mimikatz that will let you, even with any account, go and grab guest, that. Guest prints, for exactly. Instance. So it is a pretty serious flaw in that regard, that this is a very easy vulnerability to exploit. Uh, you just have to have an account on the system. So uh, good news is there are mitigations. Bad news is there aren't really any automated mitigations out there right now to help fix it on all your systems unless you want to just go script it out. And the other bad news is, is that this has been around since 2018. It was actually introduced with a patch for Windows 10 in 2018, and it exists in the current build of Windows 11 as well. Though I'm willing to bet they're going to go in and fix their issues. Patch with... it before that comes out. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Because it didn't used to be this way. It didn't used to inherit permissions that allowed read access to these files to any user. So it's just a matter of reverting whatever. Yeah. That. And as you said, there's mitigation. So that's good news. I'm sure patches are coming. But but as you mentioned, the mitigation, it's, it's not really something we can share with you on the podcast is you actually have to go into command prompt and run a couple, you know, commands uh, to to delete, you know, shadow copies to do ICA CLS command and, and a number of other things. All doable, like you said, you could probably script it out. I wonder if you could even push that through group policy to automate it a bit. 
but uh, it, uh, right now it is kind of a very heavily manual mitigation until we get patches. So what do you want to predict our next privilege escalation flaw is going to be on next week's podcast? We got one in the printer service. We got one in these. Uh, the Does it, does it, does it ha have to be Windows-based? Ooh, what's our Mac one going to be? Oh, I don't know. Or do uh, you think like Linux's kernel is going to push out an update that suddenly makes Etsy shadow readable to anyone on the system? Oh, that, that'd be awesome. But I doubt that would happen. Linux saw, is too smart for that, right? I actually saw a researcher on Twitter make this point and that this has been there since 2018. Like if Etsy yeah. shadow suddenly had read permissions system wide, like people would under know that like the second that update got pushed. This has kind of sat there for a long time. It's like people, it's not that they don't care. It's just people don't tend to look at this, I guess, until three years yeah, yeah. later. Yeah. And with open source, I guess it is some projects probably don't get looked at that closely despite being open. But when it's actually the Linux kernel, there's a lot of folks looking at that. So I think you're right. You know, that's where something like the Linux kernel being open, people would notice Etsy host being readable right away. Yeah. But, you know, again, good news is there's mitigations. Bad news is you're going to have to do this on just about any Windows 10 system that has over 128 gigabytes on its main drive. Which is probably hey, all. For, all, for all you just sitting on Windows 8.1, not wanting to upgrade. <laughs> now, now's your argument for why that was good. Yeah, same to all you Windows Vista and Windows XP users too. Just yeah, yeah. <laughs> hold down the port. <laughs> keep keep those around. God. 97, 97 till the end. Oh man, if you could keep Windows 97 running at this point in time, I would go ahead and say you're, you. Yeah, it. you're God. Anyways. <laughs> Uh, do those mitigations. Keep yourself safe. And let's let's see what the next one's going to be next week. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics, suggestions for future episode topics, or if you want to predict what next week's privilege elevation vulnerability is going to be, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at or, or apple pie recipes. You forgot those. Ooh, I like apple pie recipes. Uh, I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week.